Woo! Welcome to the Summer Work All Play podcast. We are so happy to be with you today. Happy Tuesday! It's Tuesday! And we got some good quality holiday vibes going on <laughs> over here on this Tuesday. What do you mean by holiday vibes? I feel like holiday is in the air around here. We got delicious food in the kitchen. We got we put our Christmas tree up this weekend. Yeah. And I just lit a candle. And you kind of looked at me like, what the fuck, <laughs> Megan, as I lit the candle. <laughs> yeah. You kind of have a chaotic energy when you start lighting candles. I don't know what it is about that. Like, what is it about candles that makes me kind of skeptical? I think it's just unusual for like my vibe. I feel okay, like the yeah. intimate vibe around here is we have a lot of crumbs and I think the chaos is that the house is kind of disorganized. Yeah. So when it's organized and there's a candle going on, you're like, this is different. I know. You're skeptical. I'm really skeptical. And what was the candle flavor? Oh man, it was like sea salt and lime. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I don't see, get it. That's, that's more it. like an August vibe than a holiday vibe. But you know what? Maybe it's maybe that's what we're looking for. Our candles don't need to be tortilla chips. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what they're trying. Just accept who you are, Candle. Don't try to be a tortilla chip. Um, but yeah, it is kind of weird. The holidays are here. This year has just flown by. I know. How is this happening? It's like bonkers to me. Maybe it's because we have a, a baby. And so I feel like yeah. it kind of changes the concept of time. Yeah. The time goes both very fast and very, very, very slow. Maybe it would be different though if we left the Christmas tree up year round. Yeah. This has been your proposition and I've never listened to it. But this year as we were like having our celebration to put the Christmas tree up and it was fun. We had songs going on and we had food. It's like, I could see living this up year round. That's exactly what I think. It's like, why are they just Christmas trees? Why don't we have Valentine's Day trees? Why don't we have President's Day trees? Why don't we have, I don't know, what else trees? Well, I was going to say like, fuck holidays. What about we if we just did like ultra-based trees? Oh. So if we had like the Western States tree, actually maybe we don't do the UTMB tree this year. We just yeah, do like yeah, yeah. local race-based <laughs> trees and kind of had that as our tree celebration. UTMB will come in and clear cut our trees. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just cut down every Christmas tree. <laughs> and then we're like, we're going to sell these. <laughs> yeah. They are kind of the bad guy in a Hallmark movie right now. Oh, for sure. No, but that would be fun. Except I feel like it's a little bit dangerous because I kind of worry. I, I told Leo as we were putting the Christmas tree up last night, I'm like, yeah. pet it like you pet Addy Dog. Yeah, yeah. Like nice and slow and gentle. But I worry if we left it up year round, he would just pull that UTMB tree down like right on his face. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it'd be a good learning experience for him. Yeah. You don't pull on trees. Yeah. You pet dogs gently. You pet trees yeah. gently too. <laughs> yeah. Another great experience we had last night is we started our Christmas music journey, uh, which is something I have to put up with every year where Megan is very much into Christmas music. And I'm like, why? Actually, you seemed into it last night. Well, I mean- You actually asked this morning, you're like, can we put the Christmas pop on? No, no. The pop punk. There's a pop punk Christmas list on Spotify, which combines- the holidays, which I have to begrudgingly accept as like my Scrooge self <laughs> yeah. with, you know, fast drum beats. And that I'm into. I can take Blink-182 Christmas. I cannot take another version of Mariah Carey's, like whatever her Christmas song is. Okay. But Olivia Rodrigo this year did a, a remake of River by Joni Mitchell and it was so good. Okay. You could probably do that, right? I could probably appreciate it. Yeah. Olivia Rodrigo is pop punk. So I appreciate that. This was not pop punk though. But- yeah, that's true. But I accept her vibes. <laughs> yeah. The one thing I do very much accept is we were playing the Spotify pop you know, Christmas list that everybody else listens to. And we got a little bit through. And then just a normal Christmas song was sung by someone named Ava Max. And on the screen, because we were playing it on our TV, was just basically a naked woman. <laughs> yeah, and I, I was like, it's Santa Claus. <laughs> and I love to think about some, you know, very, very conservative family who's never sh exposed their children to anything. And their little nine-year-old Jimmy John is just looking at the TV and it's like, boobies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's the best way to celebrate the holiday season. And we're bringing the best episode for you today. And we're bringing so much energy. And do you know why? Why? It's because it's race week. It's race week. The energy is popping off around here. Actually, we did, We this is like our 
fifth time going through this intro because we yeah. only made it 20 seconds because we just started giggling. Yeah. I feel like that's where our energy is at this week. Lots of big giggle energy. You know, I'm doing the 50 miler at McDowell Mountain coming up here. I'm mid into my taper. I feel fantastic, but almost too good. My cells are just kind of like ready to pop out of my skin, or at least my mitochondria out of my cells. Something is going on on the cell cellular level that has me very much ready to run, not so ready to think. Well, that sounds delightful. Your cells are ready to pop off. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I'm so pumped. And you're going to be pacing me at this race for the first time ever. I'm so excited. How have we never had a pacing journey together? I don't know. It's going to be great. You asked me, so we did a, a Thanksgiving run together and it was a really fun, like, it was kind of more of a romp than a trot. Yeah. And you asked me in the middle of the run if I if I would pace you. And I felt like you were proposing to me all <laughs> over again. It was the best. I'm so excited. You are excited? I mean, I'm honestly more excited to pace you than I am that I think I've ever been for a race. Oh my gosh. Well, it's at mile 42 of yes, a 50 miler. Yeah. So you're probably going to see me in my darkness phase. Actually, I don't think so at all. When you asked me to pace, I kind of got a little nervous and I was feeling that like energy, like my own cells are going to pop off. Yeah. And I want you to give, I want to, I want you to have like full permission to drop my ass. I will never, ever be able to drop you at mile 42 of a 50 miler. I promise. I don't know. If you're like in a race, like a one-two race up there, I could see you throwing down some fast miles. <laughs> in that <laughs> case, just leave me behind. Go for it. Oh my God, Megan. I'm not going to be like, freaking rose on the door of the Titanic, <laughs> yeah. which is always kind of funny where it's like, you know, this door and she's just like, sorry, Jack, you got to go. That's not what I'm going to do to you. I'm okay. not just going to push you off into the ocean. You should. You should definitely pu push me off into the ocean if it was a matter of like first or second place. Okay. The, the big problem here that you do not understand is that when you're anywhere near a race, it's like as soon as you see bibs being, um, you know, pinned to people's shirts. It doesn't matter if you're racing or not. There is something that clicks in your system. My guess it has to do with epigenetics. Your genetic <laughs> code just turns on and it doesn't matter what pace I do. If I was able to drop five minute miles at the end of that race, you would be dropping my ass. Uh, you at a race site is a different Megan than anyone else ever sees. Okay. That might be true. Actually. I do yeah. get this like strange hype around races and I feel like it's baked into Leo's epigenetics too, because this weekend, all he was doing was just climbing stairs over and yeah. over and over again. And so I feel like the epigenetics lineage has been passed. The amount that Leo is your son. It's kind of scary. Insane. And yeah. the amount that he is not my son in almost any way, other than his crazy hair is also kind of scary. What is up with your genetics, Megan? It's a little odd. Actually, it gives me a little bit more compassion for myself because I, I see some of the traits in me that maybe have like manifested to give me a little bit higher, like anxiety levels yeah. or just like manifest in like how I think about like public speaking or some of those things. I see like early, oh. early instances of them in Leo. And it gives me a lot of compassion for like nature nature versus nurture. And the yeah. fact that like a lot of times we can't control like how we think and feel about things. <laughs> Have you thought about that in parenting? Oh, all the time. Yeah. I mean, he came out as he was going to come out. Yeah. And I never really thought about that as humans that like a lot of our personalities are baked in by the age of five or seven and we yeah. have like no control over that. And it's wild when you think about it in a zoomed out fashion through millions of years of evolution and then corresponding with, you know, these shorter term genetic processes of just handing down traits and you combine it all and it's just like, well, if the entire universe was designed so that Leo would grab a ball and just dunk it into a basket <laughs> yeah. over and over and over. And that's While when I, screaming. Yeah. Yes. And that's when he reminds me of you is when he's like, dunk, ah, dunk, ah, and we'll do it for an hour. And then I'm like, okay. Everything about Megan makes more sense now. <laughs> yeah. She just needs to dunk and scream. It's who she is. It's a little bit scary, but I'm so excited for you to dunk and scream this weekend. How are you feeling heading into the 50 miler? Like what's going through? Yeah. I mean, it seems like your mitochondria are like bursting out of their cells, which is amazing. How are you feeling this weekend? I feel fantastic. You know, I'm ready to go. I think um, the big thing I want to try in this race 
is really make it feel shorter, not go out so hard, really you know, practice what I preach when it comes to effort and not worry so much about anything like time or nailing down specific parts of the race itself. More think about how can I get to mile 42 Mm -hmm. feeling amazing so that we can share a really wonderful eight miles together. Feeling ready to drop Megan's ass. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, Megan. To be fair, if I do drop you, that's going to be something I never let you live down. Oh, it's going to be so exciting. It would be the best moment of my life. Like that would be Actually, like, yeah, it would be, it would give me like a lot of love. And I want you to have full, like, I feel like sometimes, like, I feel like you feel self conscious if, like, I don't know, if you're like pooping in the woods yeah. or vomiting or things like that. I am here for all the bodily fluids. <laughs> I'm here to get dropped and I'm so excited for it. That's what our proposal, our vows should have been. Get down on one knee. I'm here for all of the bodily fluids. <laughs> I hope I'm not even here for them. I uplift them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Megan, if I'm able to drop you, which will never, ever happen, it would require you to like sprain an ankle or something. And even then I would just be like, bye, bye, Felicia. Um, <laughs> but it would be payback for all the times you have made me suffer through the hardest training runs of my life. And um, so I really appreciate your ability, your skills, your strength. But girl, you better be ready. Oh, I'm so ready. This is what I've trained for. (laughs) And we hope you're all ready for a really fun podcast ahead. Uh, We might have Thanksgiving thoughts or we might get right into some science on leveling up training, a study that just came out this week. Uh, Then we're going to have a really fascinating scientific discussion on post-exercise ketones. This is one of those areas that I think is at the cutting edge. It'll be wild. Then answer a bone density question from a listener. Talk about advanced tech in shoes and shirts. Um, Some things out there to help you quantify your training. A cool study on protein sources, so that's vegan athletes versus omnivore athletes. Um, A study on quantifying injury risk and hot takes. I am personally so excited to dive into the ketones discussion because there's some wild science coming out about ketones. And I feel like we're in this rare place where the science is evolving. Like so much of exercise physiology, I feel like the science is more concrete. And in ketones, it's like we're still asking the questions, we're still learning. And you did such a great summary of it in Trowinner Magazine. And I'm really excited for that to come out. I'm excited to talk about it and just kind of be in this as it's evolving. Like it's a rare moment in exercise physiology. Yeah. So the post-exercise ketones article that I wrote is coming out tomorrow, um, which is the day this podcast comes out. We're recording on Monday. And it made me very, very nervous. And I've been hesitant to write a, I mean, that's why I've been hesitant to write about this in a while is it's just like, okay, we're starting to talk about something that could be very, very effective Mm -hmm. for reasons that we're not entirely sure of, though some of the science behind it, as we're going to get into is, is truly wild at the cutting edge. And it makes me fear that I'm venturing into the gray area, um, or at least will be perceived that way if I talk about it publicly. But what changed my mind is a review study just came out and this understanding that athletes are doing it at the elite level and have been for quite a while. And so maybe by writing about it, I'm not like perpetuating problems. I'm actually democratizing information that will then help us fully understand the context of post-exercise ketones in the future of athletic performance. Well, I'm excited to get to it ahead, but I'm also, I think like if there's anyone that's going to venture into the gray area, great beyond it's you. Why? Like you're so good at it. I mean, I feel like you, you have the skills, like as a lawyer, okay. you're, you, you mean with writing, not yeah. with coaching. Well, actually, well, yes, actually. Yeah. I feel like we're very, we're very firm and strict in terms of our boundaries. Well, we're all about for Yes. Yeah. But I think when you're like summarizing scientific statements, I feel like you do a great job as a lawyer. You weave the jokes in. Yeah. You really like think about like the pros and cons. And I thought you did a good job with the article. I do think about every single word to an extent that is not healthy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's probably why I've kind of burned out on some of the writing topics, but I'm excited for, excited for people to read this one. I think it's going to gain a lot of traction and a lot of people are going to be talking about it because 
These things are whispered about by some physiologists, but it is not common knowledge yet. It is wild. Well, it's the nice part about podcasting is that we don't yeah. have to labor on every word. Like we fuck up a lot of words on here, but the convenient thing is we talk really fast. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I think we should get right into the ketone study and then come back to some of the other things. Oh yeah. Let's do that. Actually. It. I feel like we just primed it. Yeah. Yeah. And the, you've probably heard us talk about post-exercise ketones for a while. And the reason we started this way back in the day is hearing from athletes about how they were using these uh, before any of these studies really became came out. And we weren't quite sure on why. So you, if you're out there, you've probably heard about athletes using ketones, which is essentially um, a supplement that you take that tastes almost like alcohol that causes your body to go into a temporary state of ketosis, no matter what your fueling is. And that's because we've learned how to deliver ketone esters in a way yeah. that's a little bit more palatable. Though in your Trow Under Magazine article, you described it as robot's ass, yeah. which I feel like is like pretty spot on in terms of how they taste. It does taste like robot's ass. And what's fascinating scientifically is that these studies have come out for a while now that show that there's not efficacy to use them before exercise or during exercise, most likely. So why are we seeing athletes use them at all? There must be some driving factor, especially when they're used so much in cycling, so much in ultra running. And these studies start to get to it. So we're going to structure this conversation through a review that came out just last week in the American Journal of Physiology. It's called Defining Ketone Supplementation, the Evolving Evidence for Post-Exercise Ketone Supplementation to Improve Recovery and Adaptation to Exercise. And I think before we dive into that, it's helpful to dive into like a little bit of the history of like thinking about ketosis and exogenous ketones, which have become available since 2012 yeah. and have really been used in the field. Like I think a lot of what why exercise physiologists are thinking about this is because there's been seminal studies in diabetes research and seminal studies thinking about like like nutritional-based ketosis that yeah. give us the rationale to say like, okay, maybe exogenous ketones will be beneficial for athletes in certain conditions. Yeah. And the big thing to know about ketosis in general is it's a natural process that the body undergoes um, after exercise for everyone. Um, it's heightened in states of limited carbohydrate availability, which is why you've heard about athletes doing low-carb, high-fat approaches to ultras. And you've probably heard them say, this totally changes the game. Um, the jury's out on that. For the most part, the studies show that that's really bad for things like bone density, for high-intensity performance, um, athletic progress over time, like low-carb, high-fat nutrition has mostly been disproven, at least as it relates to fueling exercise. There's maybe a place for it sometimes for male athletes outside of exercise when they're not training hard. But the big theory there is, okay, there are some benefits to that, perhaps for some people, but it's outweighed by the major detriments of essentially the body breaking down because to get in states of ketosis, you're also in a state of deprivation. Well, you're like wading into a hot water, like cooking pot and yes. just like melting your body in terms of cortisol. There are some uses actually like ketosis and thinking about like ketone bodies has been around for a long time in like the medical space. I yeah. remember actually as a med student seeing a bunch of pediatric epilepsy patients oh. that were on um, like, they were thinking about being in a state of ketosis through nutritional, through nutritional, like nutritional ketosis. Um, because like ketones cross the blood brain barrier yeah. and they interact and interfere with brain metabolism. And so there's been like uses in the medical literature where it's been really helpful. Too. Yeah. And so these ketone bodies are produced naturally after exercise in, in the metabolism of free fatty acids, primarily in the liver, but also in the kidneys. Um, so this natural process is, is ongoing, but the scientific history that made this possible is that they were first figured out they could bind these ketones to an ester. Um, to create like this chemical bond in 1978. But it wasn't until 2020, 2012 
that the current formulation that's somewhat palatable became available. So until then, this was a research interest, things like injections perhaps, but not the oral supplements you have now that are made by companies like HBMN. And they're primarily being used, as I mentioned, in like diabetes research and like thinking about other medical conditions. And then all of a sudden one day we get a package shipped to our house and we open it up and I'm like, what is this? And like labeled across the top is like exogenous ketones. And this was, what is this like 2018? I think it might have been even earlier than that. Yeah. And it collected dust. I was like, this is sketchy. And this like package of exogenous ketones sent to us from a performance-based company just like gathered dust in our closet. Yeah. And, you know, around that time, they were clearly doing a lot of marketing because they were like, shit, the research that could come out on this, who knows where it's at. But what's striking to me now is that so much of the research that I've heard or the podcast ads, if you've ever heard these advertisements on podcasts are about take it before exercise, take it during exercise. That's not the way most likely it's effective. For example, there's a 2017 study in Frontiers of Physiology that found pre-exercise ketone supplementation caused around a 2% performance decrease in male professional cyclists doing a 50-minute time trial. In general, that's what you're seeing. My guess is that there could be some benefit to some athletes who are taking it during exercise in the exact right way for their physiology in conjunction with really high carbohydrate intakes. Um, But Jury's out on that. I think the science on during exercise and pre-exercise kind of mixed, but at best it's neutral. At worst, it's detrimental. And I feel like the conditions, as you mentioned, have to be perfect in order for it to work during exercise. Like it has to be like a high carb feeling. For you, you actually tried this one day during exercise and you were out on Magnolia Road here in Boulder, Colorado, like slightly higher elevation doing a long run. And I get this call from you mid run and you're like, my lights are totally out. Come pick me up. (laughs) And I mean, I feel like for you, it went full lights out as soon as you had that ketone mixture. I called the boober. Yeah. (laughs) The 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 wife wife uber. Uber. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) High five. Gotcha. That's going back. That's going into the article. I'm going <laughs> to add that joke to the article. We should always workshop articles here so we can get jokes in there. Um, so all of that is interesting. But the reason we're talking about it today, and the, we've talked about it on past episodes too, are some of the findings on natural EPO production. Um, and, and this is when taken post-exercise. Post-exercise. Though it probably happens whenever you take it. Mm-hmm. And that's the theory that I think I'm starting to um, coalesce around, is that when athletes take it, before or during exercise, we're essentially seeing they're doing it for the same benefits we're about to talk about, not for the performance benefits acutely. Mm-hmm. And they notice per- benefits over time, and then they're starting to take them. They're just kind of missing it. That, In other words, some of the rationale for them are not the actual reasons. It's the confounding variables that are driving um, use, not the, you know, independent variable. That's such a great description of like how we think about the lines of causation of this. But when I was looking at the science and I was reviewing the article that you wrote, the numbers, like the sheer effect size of what they're seeing in terms of EPO, I was, it actually like scared me a little bit yeah. because I was like, I don't want to believe in ketones because like, Neither do I. I don't know. There's like a, it, I bristle against it because it feels like it's biohacking in a way that just, I don't love that element of sports. But when I saw these numbers, it, yeah. I was both excited because it's like, wow, that's really cool. And also scared because I was like, I don't actually want ketones to work. Yeah. So maybe actually before we get into the numbers, we talk about that for a second. Yeah. Why we don't want it to work. And the reason we're talking about this is because we're seeing these studies. But if we actually looked at every type of intervention, how often would we see findings like we're about to discuss? Oh, yeah. yeah. You could replicate like these EPO-based studies with like protein powder, with creatine, yeah. with like so many different types of supplements. And, and we think- don't know what they would um, return because we don't test this type of stuff. Yes. I mean, if you dig 
if you start digging in science and look at any sort of intervention, I mean, I'd be curious to see what you would find. It reminds me actually of some of the genetic studies you've been a part of, mm-hmm. yeah. where when they do these large genetic models where they take the entire genome and then model like, you know, how things manifest in that athlete or person, you have to be really careful because sometimes you'll find spurious correlations that have nothing to do with what's actually coming from the genome. Because especially if you don't know what the genes do, like with ketones, a lot of times we don't know why it's doing this. You got to be careful. Oh yeah. And that's why you need like really stringent lines to say this is significant. Like in genome-wide association studies, there's a really high bar to clear in terms of saying like this is significant. And then you need to like make sure that's like reproducible and you need to think about mechanisms. And so it's really curious. I feel like there are a lot of parallels between like genetic studies and how we're thinking about a novel intervention like this. And we only have a few studies. So it has been somewhat reproducible by two different labs, but we need a lot more. Actually, that is an important point too, is two different labs is not a lot. Like I think if you have a lot of similar research findings coming out of one lab, it's like, okay, what is that lab doing? And I want to see this replicated in like five, six, seven, eight, 10 labs, because I mean, I think it's really helpful to make sure those results are reproduced over a period of time. Definitely. So in 2018, a lot of this research began, but not in running. This is one of those fascinating scientific sagas. Um, A study in the Diabetes Care Journal injected ketone bodies into people Mm -hmm. And they found something that they weren't necessarily expecting. They weren't looking for increased EPO levels. Um, But it wasn't until 2023 in a study we've talked about in a past episode um, in the American Journal of Physiology that we saw this replicated in athletes taking oral ketones. So this study had nine men complete two cycling trials, uh, both with one hour of two minutes on, two minutes off, essentially. In both trials, athletes can consumed carbs and protein. In only one of the trials, athletes consumed ketones as well. And the results, and this is what really kind of hit me over the head and I was like, oh my gosh, ketones, this is scary yeah. and wild and cool at the same time. They found that this single dose of ketones um, led to a 20% higher levels of natural EPO in the bloodstream. Yeah. That being said though, they didn't look at like downstream findings of like hemoglobin mass or like, is this EPO actually acting on the body in ways yeah. that are going to benefit performance? But 20% increase is pretty wild. And then other studies have found, like the the other lab that kind of replicated this study have found similar findings. Yeah. That study just came out as well. And that was a really interesting one because what it did is a three-week overload block, um, very similar to another study we talked about in the past episode, um, but a little bit more thorough. And they did 10 training sessions a week for a ketone group and a control group. The ketone group in the um, responded totally differently to this overload, which not only did they not show any signs of overreaching, but they also showed massive signs of capillarization in their blood vessels, 44% increases in essentially what amounts to angiogenesis, which is one of the things you're looking for in training. And then a 26% increase in EPO levels um, in those athletes. So those are the two studies that get to this. The wild part is we don't know the mechanism that's going on here. There's Actually, just theories. I love, I feel like whenever researchers talk about like the potential mechanisms for ketones, they refer to it as like the physiological milieu, yeah, which yeah. is just like such a vague <laughs> term. It's like anytime I feel like you don't know something in medicine, one, you should say you don't know it, yeah. but then you should use the word milieu because it's yeah. like, it's just impacting something in the environment. <laughs> yeah. Yes. We don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the wild part about the review that led to us officially bringing this out is what the review does is it tries to take all of the studies and all of the theory and all of the mouse models and propose all of the different ways this could work. Um, And that's risky because as you start to, if you're grasping at straws, like if you're fishing for reasons that something works, you might think you're catching a fish and you're actually catching like- An octopus. Yeah, or an an anchor that got dropped (laughs) a long time ago. That's just like a false thing. 
think it'd be pretty sweet to catch an octopus, actually. I know, right? That would actually be great. It'd be like, I'm winning the Nobel Prize. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So there's a lot of different findings from the review that are relevant, but um, just to look at a few of them, they think it may cause epigenetic changes. So it's the weird part about ketosis. So you can imagine this evolutionarily. You have millions of years of this process of you know breaking down free fatty acids, causing ketone bodies to be released. It's honed in nature just through evolution. And now we have an ability to cause transient ketosis while also fueling. So you get whatever benefits there are from nature being like, it's time to adapt to the stimulus with getting to fuel and the adaptation that comes from that. You combine the two and it could be a signal to the body to adapt to stimuli. And that's one of the big theories here. And I think right alongside the adaptation to stimuli is the idea that uh, ketones have anti-inflammatory and anti-oxidative properties. And so you're thinking like, okay, maybe this helps athletes adapt. But on the flip side too, and I think a lot of the mechanisms they proposed in this milieu have both pros and cons. Definitely, yeah. It's like, well, that could actually be a con too, to some extent, because like, you know, if you're always in this state of like, reducing inflammation and reducing oxidative stress, it's like, are you actually adapting to the stimuli? And so like, I see that actually kind of as like a a pros cons mixed bag. And that's one of the hard parts is the trade-offs that could be involved in this type of thing. Because another thing they do is they think that ketones may blunt AMPK phosphorylation. And in our episodes where we talked about mitochondria, AMPK is an important thing to respond to mitochondria, especially with low level endurance activity. So maybe some of these benefits are corresponding with long-term detriments. And we only have three-week studies so far and only a couple of them. So what actually are we seeing? Um, And then you can go through so many other fun things from G-receptor signaling to neurotransmitter um, concentrations. Do you ever think about G-receptor signaling, as you said that, about like the G-spot of the brain? I was thinking, ain't nothing but a G thing, baby. Yeah, every time I see G-protein coupled receptors, I'm like, the G-spot. How often do you see G-protein coupled receptors? An embarrassing amount of time, <laughs> yeah, actually. Yeah. And every single time you see it. Every <laughs> single time. That's a really, I just like gave myself away as a weirdo right there. And every single time you see it, you're just like, G-spot. I'm like, my mitochondria are bursting. <laughs> <laughs> they're getting touched in just the right manner. Oh, they're getting tickled and trained. They're a myth <laughs> that is made up by people that don't understand. Um, but there's all of these different things. But then you combine it all with a ton of musculoskeletal theories from increasing angiogenesis, increased protein synthesis, maybe improved mitochondria function, maybe decreased. It's essentially a bunch of unanswered questions. And the weird part to me is just that there's this big science experiment that's not going on in labs necessarily right now. It's going on in the real world. And people are whispering about it. And whether this is like truly efficacious or not is not something we'll truly know probably for five or 10 years. I know. Isn't that wild? Yeah. It's like, it's actually, I mean, it's kind of wild to think about how many like pro cyclists and runners are just essentially being ketone body guinea pigs out there on this. Um, But another point that actually, I think to wrap up our whole like milieu discussion of like what could possibly be happening is I do think given the like historical use of ketones and like thinking about ketosis for like epilepsy in the brain, I think actually there's been some studies looking at like, okay, does it impact perceived exertion? And you would think that if it has, like, if it modulates perceived exertion, athletes could perform a lot better. Maybe it, like, also makes performance more pleasant, too. And maybe that's the during exercise rationale. Yes. That could be yeah, yeah. relevant. So it's like, let's throw the brain into the physiological milieu and see what happens. Yeah. So let's end this in the most unsatisfying way possible. This is not the G-spot of <laughs> yeah. science. This is questions. Actually, questions to me are the G-spot. Oh, I are love the asking questions and getting like curious and having no answers. <laughs> okay. So if questions are the G-spot, what is the clitoris? Answers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Oh, I love oh, you. That was weird. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I hope the researchers listen to this podcast and are like, what the fuck is going on right now? Actually, you email the researchers. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually waiting for responses from the researcher. And I asked the researcher some of the questions we're about to say. I didn't say anything about a G-spot though. <laughs> yeah. We should follow up on the next podcast with their... I'm very curious. Okay. So what questions did you ask them? Because I think it informs kind of where your brain is going in terms of the next steps of ketones. Okay. Well, first I'm actually going to read the overall questions, the overarching ones, and then I'll get into the detailed ones that I asked just the researcher. The first is how do these types of adaptations change over time? Then what about female athletes? Yeah. There's literally been no research on female athletes. This could be terrible. I mean, I feel like it actually parallels a lot of what we see in exercise physiology where like the research starts in male athletes and then like 12 years later, we're like, oh, we should research female athletes. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, we just don't know. And it's one of those places where nothing in what we're saying right now is saying take them necessarily. Yes. Yeah. Um, And we have definitely haven't said that to our athletes. Um, How about aging athletes? That's one that matters. Um, Athletes of different levels, different goals. Um, What's the right right dosage and timing? Um, what I've been doing occasionally just for a hint behind the scenes is I'll take them once or twice a week after hard workouts, because if there's an AMPK issue, um, with downregulation there, I think after intensity would be the best time to take them. But because you don't want it to negatively impact your mitochondria. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Um, should consumption be periodized across the season? And then maybe the most spicy question of all, and this is the last one I asked the researcher is should ketones be banned altogether? Like, do you think that would be possible though? Like, can we measure? I feel like where there's a will, there's a way. That's true. In labs. It's also kind of hard though, because it's like, I feel like when things do get banned after they've been used for a period of time, it's usually things that are like prescribed, that are harder to get, that are easy to measure. And it's like- Or things that are negative. That's true. Health-wise. And and right now, I mean, we don't have any evidence that ketones are negative health-wise. In fact, all the evidence is pointing to, they could be have like solutions for so many health problems for people. Exogenous ketones. Yes, Exogenous yeah. ketones. Yes. Not, ketosis generally, I think is the ship has sailed there. Maybe some people need to think about that for specific health conditions, but absolutely not for athletes. Um, I think there's a strong argument that we should at least consider whether if these studies are validated and if they correspond with hemoglobin hematocrit decreases and if they're only available to some people. They're expensive. Yeah. And is there a problem there? And and I guess the problem too is, do we sound like we're doing almost marketing for ketones because we're saying these studies find this? The problem is we're just in a state of uncertainty and we wanted to bring it to everybody because if we don't acknowledge this uncertainty while it's happening, we could be in a five to 10 year window where some athletes get benefits and some don't. Well, I also think, yeah, I think that's actually the crux of the uncertainty for me is how do different athletes respond to this? And it's like, okay, so those EPO numbers were wild. But if you also look at like high altitude training yeah. and EPO production, it's like- Altitude is way more. Altitude is way more. Ketones have a modest effect. But if you're at altitude, are you going to, is that yeah. going to stack with like the favorable benefits of ketones? And so I think I have a lot of questions, but I'm going to put you on the spot here. Yeah. Because I want an answer and just answer as like honestly as possible. An athlete comes to you. Clitoris. <laughs> you passed. High yes. five. That was the answer. I found I was, it. That, yeah, yeah. The rare man. <laughs> you crushed it. I'm so proud of you. Okay. Athlete comes to you and they're like an elite athlete yeah. looking to like get to the next level of performance. They're in their mid thirties. They're a male and they want to take ketones after exercise. What would you tell them? Go for it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't have enough information yet to actually draw conclusions, right? Yeah. But as we talked about, I started taking them and four weeks later had one of the best races of my life at Blue Sky at the end. And mm-hmm. 
obviously million confounding variables, probably not the driving force, but it at least shows that there's not a huge detriment. And I feel really healthy right now. Yeah. So it's hard because again, this is an evolutionary process designed over millions and millions of years. And what we have now is a dimmer switch Mm -hmm. on it, you know, and you can just turn that dimmer switch up or down and we have no rhyme or reason for where it should be set or where it could be set and what that does. And that to me is scary. So it would only be yes, but in the context of please be careful, please talk to your doctor, please understand that we don't know. And this could have just as many negative issues as positive benefits and other things might do this too. Like maybe if we did hot tubs yes, and measured yeah. them the same way. But it's also like if we did hot tubs and altitude training and ketones, are those all stacking or are you adding that up to the point where like ketones have a negligible effect given that you're already kind of maxing out some of those EPO benefits and are or there other any, benefits? Yeah. Are there any performance benefits in general? Yeah. We don't know. Okay. One last question. Yeah. Same like like hypo- like question as before in it's a female athlete. Yeah. Would that change your consideration? Good. I, guess I, I almost jumped in and said that word again. And I'm so glad I didn't <laughs> because that would have really- The C word? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, the good C word, not yes. the bad C yeah, word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's female athletes in question. No. Yeah. Um, because I think we have enough data now to know general safety for mm-hmm. men. Um, I don't think we have enough data- to know for women at all. Yeah. And I'm not, full disclosure, I'm not taking them. No. Partially because I'm like, I don't know, I'm not in a state right now where I want to like drink robots ass and I've had some health issues and there's no data in women athletes. And so for me, that whole mix, I was like, I'm just not going to do it. Yeah. But if you're out there and you've tried this. Let us know. Yeah. Let us know. And not during exercise. We're not interested in that anymore because I think that we basically understand that field a little bit more post-exercise, which I think is a little bit rarer, um, but let us know. Um, and it actually brings up, we asked last week for that about sodium bicarb, mm-hmm. which is kind of the other supplement that people are whispering about. And then there's also a question, if you're doing sodium bicarb yeah. and ketones, what's the interaction? Like, are they adding up to a positive effect together? Yeah. And it's impossible to know. And so here's a quote from the article to end this very unsatisfying discussion, uh, which might be incredibly satisfying to you. So if you have any moans, Megan, save them, <laughs> yeah. save them till the end. <laughs> Based on the articles mixed with a heaping dose of gossip, I could see three different scenarios unfolding over the next 10 years. One, post-exercise ketones don't live up to their promise. And this is all a nothing burger. That is the outcome that would please me the most. You would moan the most. (laughs) And we all know that what's most important in science is my pleasure. (laughs) Two, they become as common as something like iron supplements for athletes who need it. They are expensive, so that isn't great. But maybe ketones really will help athletes be healthier and faster with no side effects. Three, they are banned as an illegal performance enhancer. I have no inside info on whether that's a possibility, but I wouldn't bet the college fund against it. It's kind of helpful to see that broken down. And I really like I really like the use of nothing burger there. Yeah. I feel like that's like your greatest insult to anyone. It's like being a jerk, at least you have opinions. Being a nothing burger is the <laughs> absolute worst. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. Do you... Do you think that's a helpful discussion for people that are listening to the podcast? I do. I mean, I think it's always helpful to be informed about like the latest science. And I think if anything, even if it's not like ketones or if they become banned in the future, I think the scientific process is informative. It's like, how are we thinking about this? How are we researching it? And how are we wading into something that has so much unknown? And how do we just like adventure into the gray area, great beyond? It is the sexiest science. It is sexy science. Because it's it's wild. So the review study, um, actually, I I linked to it in the article, recommend you go read the at least skim some of it. And it delves into the nitty gritty of what makes us human. And because these metabolic processes are so intricately connected to survivability in nature Mm -hmm. that you're essentially getting an anthropology lesson along with 
you know, an endurance performance lesson. You're getting a birds and the bees lesson. Yeah. About- alongside talks of G-spots. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And who knows? If it causes capillarization, maybe yeah. ketones help with things like sex drive. Actually, you were writing your article before and you're like, oh, I, no, no, I no, no, no. Hypo- you can't tell the listeners that. Many. You're like, I have a hypothesis and you just pointed down there. And I like <laughs> knew immediately what you were talking about. <laughs> that did happen, right? It, yes, it did happen. But it was one of your finer moments. Okay. Yeah. Do you wanna do you wanna do a control study for Oh, that'd be fascinating, actually. I mean I, there would be interesting mechanisms, yeah. I mean at our house. Oh, sure. Yeah. (laughs) Even better. All right. On to the next study. This one will be really quick. We were planning on doing this one first, but I think that was a good discussion. Uh, This was in Frontiers of Physiology. It just came out in November 2023. And it's called From Juniors to Seniors, Changes in Training Characteristics and Aerobic Power in 17 World-Class Cross-Country Skiers. And what they did was they did a retrospective analysis. So they looked back at the training of 10 male and seven female world-class cross-country skiers. And my question is, is Cross-country skiers always have the best data. The best data. We're always doing retrospective analyses with like really robust data. It's great. Why is this? Do they have like a Strava that's just for skiers where they include every piece of information? Yeah. And it's just like zone one greatness all the time. So I think probably what it actually is, is that they have like physiologists that are monitoring their training when they show this much talent this early. So it's not the athletes necessarily, though they're playing a role in keeping journals and stuff. It's like the coaches, researchers coming in and really heavily quantifying it. Which actually scares me a little bit though, because it's like- I was going to say the same thing. Are there confounding variables? Like what is going on if we're like looking at and analyzing? It's like as soon as you analyze something really deeply, you'd like fundamentally change that in some way in a lot of things that you think about. And so that's my question is, is like, are we causing confounding by looking at these athletes from such a young age? Perhaps. The other thing that was going to concern me- Are you going to say dubbing? Well, just whenever you bring physiologists into the equation, when people are in their juniors, yes. you do start to get a little worried just knowing the history of sports. I just rewatched on the treadmill the great documentary Icarus, mm-hmm. um, which if you haven't seen it, please watch it. It's fantastic. Um, but in that, it really shows like the Russian program was so designed from physiologists on up. And it always makes me a little hesitant, but I don't think that's an issue here. And, and what it shows in general is that it's all about endurance training. So across from junior um, skiers to senior se- skiers, the endurance training increased by 35%, equivalent to 197 hours per year. That's a lot of hours per year yeah. when you think about that. And when you think about that too, though, you look at their training intensity distribution, you're like, oh, that makes sense. That's yeah. actually doable. Because to me, you think about 197 hours a year of like higher intensity training, and you're thinking about wading into that crock pot we talked about before of like cortisol and stress yeah. and negative adaptations. Okay. But here was their training intensity distribution in the senior seasons, 92% zone one, 4% zone two, and 4% zone, zone three in a three zone model. So easy, moderate, hard. That's wild. 92% easy. And what's crazy is that the increase in volume all came from low intensity and then just a little bit from moderate. So 186 of the 197 hours from low intensity. So a good reminder that as you increase volume, you're not increasing your workouts or your efforts necessarily. You're increasing your aerobic base because it doesn't take much stimulus at the top end to totally saturate those types of adaptations. And so you know, let yourself saturate, saturate from the ground up, not from the top down. (laughs) It's always good to saturate from the ground up. Yeah. But okay. But I actually have one question on this is that I think there's still a lot of evolving research about sex and gender differences in terms of training intensity distributions. Like we've been recently having conversations, like where are female athletes that are doing like purely like Norwegian based training? And it's like, 
and also like a flip side too, like is adding this much aerobic activity in like zone one super beneficial for female athletes? And I think there's still a lot of research left to be done on this. Yeah. And it gets to confounding because if you're researching the best athletes in the world, it might be a different answer. Yes, exactly. Yes. Athletes that aren't that naturally talented. And also if you're researching skiers versus runners, it could be yeah. totally different too. And I think that's one thing to think about is these skiers are they're not they're not having the biomechanical pounding of running. And yeah. so they can do really high hours of training too. And so it's a little bit of a different equation. Yeah, but the question about women is so interesting. And I think the big um open point right now in training theory that maybe would be a great first question to ask any coach as you're, you know, deciding on their understanding of training theory is why does Norwegian training work for some athletes and why doesn't it work for most women, at least at the top level of the sport? And is there a way to differentiate that up front? Like you don't want to go through a trial and error process and realize you're in the error group and be like, oh, well, I wasted a year or two doing Norwegian-based training and like it messed me up. And I think it'd be really helpful to have like predictors up front of who's going to respond to what type of training. Do you have any theories on women in particular about like, let's say an athlete is trying to progress from the, not from junior to senior, but from like really good to really great. Like for a female athlete, is there anything in particular that you would focus on? Okay. I would say they have to be like pretty injury resistant. So like able to handle higher loads of training. I think they have to have excellent hormonal and like biomarker profiles. I think they have to be great at fueling, great at fueling efforts. Um, And I think they have to have like, I don't know, I think you can see some of this if you do like low grade Norwegian based training and kind of like build it up and kind of see like early predictors. Does that make any sense? No, it totally does. What I was thinking about there is Parker Valby. And yeah, that's true. So when you think about Parker Valby, who just won the NCAA cross country championship, um, notoriously she does it on two to three running days a week and then a lot of cross training. Which blows my mind even more than ketones. Yeah. But yeah. question back at you. Yeah. Do you think that would work for a male athlete? No, I don't. Yeah. Actually, in quite the same way. And yeah. so that might be a clue for training theory more generally, is that she's doing a pretty high intensity training program with a lot of cross training, right? Mm-hmm. In, in the cross training intensity. Um, perhaps we are seeing, and, and Stacey Sims actually makes some arguments that are a little touch and go at times, but saying that women in general need a little bit more high intensity. Yes. And that's because women, like if you think about like overall mitochondrial function, the theory is that women are like stronger at baseline than male athletes. Yeah. Yeah, Aerobically. So I think that there might be something there that it's not about the the mid-level intensity that's so prevalent in Norwegian training. The tempo threshold is less important for some female athletes than the more polarized approach. Yes. Having low intensity mixed with high intensity. Yeah. Yeah. And having the high intensity be a little bit more quality than for men who it's like, you can just throw a fuck ton of moderate training at a guy. And as long as they're being economical, often they'll respond. Well, do you think some of that is also related to power? So like, Uh like, objectively and yeah, yeah. females can do great things, but men have more power. Like it's just like, testosterone it's like a drug. The, the unfortunate realities of testosterone. And do you think that at high intensity, women are getting more of that biomechanical stimulus to help boost power? And that's like feeding into running economy. Yeah. It could all come back to power. Yeah. Especially power at VO2 max. Mm-hmm, exactly. So maybe that ties it full circle is yeah. that, you know, the, what the study on cross country skiers shows is that still aerobic training is the most important, but maybe women are a little bit more limited by power at VO2 max Mm -hmm. in general than your average male athlete, especially at the elite level. And so for female athletes out there, maybe the lesson is you should focus a little bit more on things like hill strides, like power hill strides, 30 second hill strides, like some short intervals when you're ready for it, things like that. And for the male athletes, you need to keep speed high, but 
oh, that is more of a consideration as you age rather than something you need to just nail from day one. Well, I like that consideration for female athletes. Be freaking powerful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Do you want to do bone density or get to the news and fun things section? Let's get to news and fun things. And okay. then we can hit bone density at the end if we have time. Perfect. Yes. Um, before we do that, you know what else is a fun thing? Jonji. Athletic Greens is. Okay. They're both fun things. How can you pick one or the other? Well, I'm thinking Athletic Greens. You just let me down. I'm thinking, I've been, wait, I've let you down? I just love Jonji. But I want to talk about Athletic Greens because I used Athletic Greens literally right before this podcast. Okay. You also, so last night I gave you a hug in the kitchen and you used Athletic Greens in the morning as you always do. Yeah. And I come downstairs last night and I give you this hug in the kitchen. I'm like, why do you smell like Athletic Greens? Where have you been? Yeah. And you took it twice. I did. I know. I could smell it on you. Yeah. <laughs> you could smell it on my skin. I know. I was like, what have you been doing? I've been cheating. Where have you been escapating? <laughs> um, yeah. So I did that because it's race week and I don't want to get sick right now and just being a little careful because I felt a little running nose coming on and I woke up and I felt great. Good. So yeah. every single morning now, right when I come downstairs, I've been taking it. It has a million micronutrients. In fact, I'd love for studies like we talked about with post-exercise ketones to be applied to athletic greens because shit is wild. We oh, get it's so good. At least three emails a week from listeners that just say starting it has totally changed their lives. And as a thank you, so athletic or drinkag1.com slash swap, S-W-A-P. If you use that link, you also get free vitamin D, free travel packs, and you support the podcast. So we really recommend it. Take it first thing in the morning. And most of all, use it with a little frother because I found since I do that, I don't have GI issues on the run. And I think part of the reason is I'm so bad at mixing it <laughs> and the frother has leveled up my mixing game. Well, you were literally eating greens. Exactly. You were not drinking greens. You were eating greens by the clumps. And the powder was coming out the other end. So <laughs> drinkag1.com slash swap. Okay. So first news and fun thing is a new shoe from brand normal. And I want to read the letters to you and see how you pr would pronounce it. So it's K-B-O-I-X. Okay. This has been going through my head nonstop yeah. because I saw it before doing an elliptical the other morning. And I pronounce it K-Boyks. 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 It's definitely K-Boyks. Okay. And for whatever reason, when I was on the elliptical, I was doing a workout and yeah. I was like vibing. And all I could say was K-Boyks. Like, K-Boyks. <laughs> and it's absolutely not how you pronounce it. But it did seem like the best shoe name ever until oh, yeah. I saw how it was actually pronounced, which is Kabosh, yeah. um, I think. And it's named after the Catalan words, like we're killing this from, Boig, um, which means crazy, and Boish, Bosch, uh, which is a specific kind of tree. A crazy tree. A crazy tree. Well, we also learned from podcast listeners that you shouldn't say crazy. So yeah. Yeah, we're breaking the norms. I guess it's actually cultural, so it's different. Perhaps. And I imagine I imagine uh, Boig in Catalan doesn't fully equate to crazy in English. It's, it's interesting. So early in the podcast, we would occasionally use the word crazy as like a modifier on things. I actually use it a lot. I like to say it. But now I say bonkers. I say wild. Yeah. So actually, the ketones article that's coming out tomorrow is called The Wild Uncertain Science of Post-Exercise Ketones. You could just say the boig uncertain science of exercise <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. ketones. Yeah. We're trying to be uplifting of all mental health statuses and uh, embrace it where it is. But this shoe is not just a name. That's not why we're talking about it. What it has is interchangeable midsoles, three different types. One is like a classic Eva midsole. One is a TPU midsole. It's kind of like Nike React Foam. And the third is a Piba, Piba midsole, the more advanced super sole foam. And I guess what you do is you're supposed to like in and out the the midsole. You're supposed to change them out. Yeah. And I hesitate a little bit because like I don't really trust trust us with engineering things. Yeah. Like, would you trust yourself to change out the midsole of a shoe? Not sure about shoes that come with chores. Yeah, exactly. Actually, Speedland had done something similar. They had like a removable carbon plate yeah. in their shoe. And it scares me a little bit because I don't trust myself with chores. I'm like, I'm not going to execute this properly. But I like what they're doing. Oh, it's amazing for the environment. Yeah. It's based on making shoes last longer and having more options. So you only need one shoe, not three. Um, 
I really like it. I do think that there are some interesting considerations. My question to you, do you think that this is a successful model for shoes? It's a good question. I don't know if this kaboiks is going to be the successful model, but I do wonder like what it's going to do to how we think about shoes yeah. and how we think about like the environmental impact of shoes. And I think that's a great thing. I mean, yeah. also shoes are so individual too. Like people, there's going to be a subset of people that love these shoes and a subset of people that hate these shoes. And the yeah. same goes for like the alpha fly and literally any shoe. Sure. And if a shoe is not for me, it doesn't mean it's for someone else. And I also, like, I don't know. It could be for me. I and I like to. seeing um, advances in technology. Agreed. It is yeah. really cool. Like Also, I, bet- I like seeing people's like, they're taking a risk and I love it. Yeah. And it, yeah, good, go, good for normal. Um, yeah. So maybe- Normal is very cool. Also, we love Killian. We do love Killian. I want to support Killian <laughs> and his making love to mountains. Yeah. Yeah. yeah in three different types of like midsoles. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Next up is a new, another piece of technology called Timeware. This is a shirt that you wear that helps you determine your ventilatory thresholds, which then correspond with your lactate thresholds. So your essentially your aerobic threshold, which is LT1, and your classic lactate threshold, LT2. Very interesting science. And I had never heard about it. I hadn't either. Yeah. I, and, did a yeah. Deep, I did a deep dive online. So it's kind of like a tank top. And then it has an IMU in the back, which is like an inertial measurement unit. Oh, cool. It's like what you use to measure like a lot of different like wearable based things, yeah. anything that like has movement associated with it. And then they also have this like zigzaggy based like heart rate band ah. looking thing across the back that also helps in the measurement. And it's probably measuring ventilation, I think. Yes, exactly. It's measuring ventilation. One question I had though is like, do you think this still works with a sports bra? <laughs> I assume so. Yeah. I did control F of brawl on their website and couldn't find anything. <laughs> okay. Well, I do that at every website I go to. Actually. <laughs> yeah. Actually, you just do boobs, not brawl. <laughs> yeah. yeah. G-spot? Why isn't that on the website? <laughs> Where is that? That's that's the true discrimination. Where are our G-protein couple receptors? If men had a G-spot, that would be on every website. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. New York Times, first headline. G-spot. Everything you measure in a study, it has to have it. <laughs> do men have a G-spot? Maybe they do. Actually, that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I think isn't everything a G-spot in men? <laughs> I don't know what you're getting at there, but I don't know. I feel like we have some urologists in the audience who probably have an idea. I should kind of know that. Wait, about G-spot in men? Yeah. It's like, I mean, Why should you know that? You're a female a, athlete I've health researcher. I've done a urology researcher. rotation before. You think that they're, they're talking to the med student in it? Like, <laughs> hey, this guy is like bent over the table. You're like, hey, you know- Fourth year med student, come have a look. Oh, it was always awkward because I looked like a twelve year old as a yeah, fourth yeah, yeah. year med student, and I was like being ushered into these urology rooms. I'm like, I'm so sorry. We have those the small fingers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so the reason my interest was piqued in this is that an athlete we coach who's amazing um, tested it, and her numbers lined up almost exactly with what I predicted based on what I've seen in her training. Well, also the really cool thing too is you can get, there's a really strong gold standard for these numbers via a metabolic cart. Yeah. And I feel like whenever you're testing a product, it's helpful to have a strong gold standard to compare it to because you're like, oh, well, like I can very easily determine how accurate this is. And this product is actually pretty accurate. Yeah. So the claimed VT1 accuracy is 97.3% and VT2 is 95.8%. So that's not right on, right? So like if you're trying to plan like metabolic cart efficiency, not this type of testing. But if you want to get a general feel for like what your easy training is, which is VT1, what your moderately hard training is, VT2, it actually seems pretty damn good. Um, so I'm kind of excited by this science. Don't have any information on it yet. Yeah, we've never tried it. Yeah. I kind of want to try it. I, I really want to try it now. I want to see how it interacts with the sports bra. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a female athlete that tested it. So Oh, good. Yeah. I'm sure that's it awesome. Seemed, seemed pretty good. Yeah. Well, um, it's a really cool product. And I feel like if you're a beginner, it would also be really cool to see like your progression charted out. Like yeah. I think you would see pretty massive gains in terms of like aerobic efficiency and things like that. And you can see it on paper. Yeah. So 
want to try that out and also give a shout out to a smaller business. Next up is an article in the New York Times, actually The Athletic, which they purchased, on Jesse Diggins, uh, an Olympic skier who seems incredible. Oh, she seems amazing. And she's done like incredible things for eating disorder recovery and like yeah. how we think about sport and like the mental health context of sport. So she raced this weekend in a World Cup and her status to race was a little bit uncertain because she's been in the middle, like deep in the middle of eating disorder recovery. Yeah. And this is like a relapse for her. She had an eating disorder like prior and I don't know. I just think the way that she like is so open and the way that yeah. she talks about this and how she competes in the middle of this struggle is so inspiring. And you know, not everyone can do that. Not everyone can compete in the middle of eating disorder recovery, but yeah. she's been amazing and she just got second in this wow. World Cup and she did so in like she like she got stabbed by a ski pole at one point and like finished with her face all bloody and it was truly <laughs> like an epic story of a comeback. Yeah. What a badass beast. Not because she finished a second or wins all these races, but because she puts herself out there in such a way that does uplift so many people. Like the number of people in this world that have similar struggles is so high. Like, and you know, we always come back to this because like seeing behind the scenes or like even honestly, like looking on Instagram sometimes and you get these feelings, it's just like, oh no, that person has a journey left to continue. Um, or maybe if we knew them personally, we would be on that journey with them. It's like, Oh, it's so good to open up just because it's a hard journey to do solo. So if you're out there, you're listening to this and someone like Jesse Diggins, like that resonates with you. No, you are not alone. You freaking got this. And it is definitely something you can continue to crush with athletically as long as you get the help you need. Well, I'm so glad you brought up that point because I feel like she normalizes asking for help. And I yeah. feel like the reason that she's been able to compete through this is because she has this massive support team. And I feel like she's taken it from like some of the struggles that she had before and she's been able to like tap back into that resource. Yeah. And I feel like there's no way she would be able to do this alone. And I think if anything, the big thing that I take away from Jesse, well, a lot of things I take away, but it's the importance of like having this care team to support you. And I love that she wrote this in an Instagram post. And I think this was like, it just describes her experience so well. I race with my heart on my sleeve and it's important for me to also wear my past and my present out in the open mm. because this shouldn't be something I ever have to hide. I am still working through a lot of things and sometimes it's messy, but the one thing I've done right is to ask for help when I need it. Yeah. And it's just the power of asking for help. And yeah. I feel like she emphasizes that so clearly. Also, mm -hmm. she raced with earrings that said fuck. Oh. And I was like, <laughs> Jesse Diggins is fucking around and finding out. I love it. All I see in our little paper here, it just says fuck earrings. And I was like, <laughs> I don't understand that. So I'm just going to kind of let Megan take this one. So I feel like that is a really good energy. You would you would bring that energy. Oh, yeah. Wouldn't it be? I, maybe I should get some fuck earrings for racing. Yeah. yeah. Maybe I don't need to fuck around and find out any more than I do. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're out there and you're going through something, no, like, People are there for you. You are not alone. We are there for you. If you contact us through any means, we will be there for you. And other people will be too. You are so loved wherever you're at and you are not alone. And I think the like struggles of this journey make people themselves. Like I feel like they make you unique too. And I think lean into that. So Jesse Dickens was talking about the fact that her mom sent her a text message before this race. Yeah. And the text message was so beautiful. It said, if the seas were calm, we would never build a better boat. Oh, and yeah. she described her summer. She was like, I'm building a warship. Actually, yeah. she said motherfucking warship. <laughs> she curses just as much as I do. And I love her. Perfect. And that's a good uh, lesson about adaptation in general. Yeah. Like, it doesn't come from calm seas. Oh, no. The good life never comes from calm seas. Yeah. Yeah. So perfect. Actually, oceans, the ocean scares me. Yeah. Yeah. Does it scare you? A hundred thousand percent. Like, I'm even afraid of calm seas. Water scares me. Yeah. I'm just, I don't think I've ever, like, I never spent a lot of time around the water as a kid. And so I'm like, this is a scary abyss. Air scares me too when I really think about it, like being in the air. Yeah. 
Maybe everything scares me if yeah, you really yeah. think about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we need Jesse Diggins' mom to send us a text message is <laughs> yeah. what we're saying. Okay, uh, next up, just a quick plug uh, like we did last week for a podcast. This one is for a newsletter. I uh, wanted to give a shout out to Fast Women by Allison Wade. Uh, Google Fast Women Allison Wade um, and give it a follow. It is. It came out today, this morning. And the reason I want to mention it is I was clicking through it. It is so much work every week and talks all about women's running. It is awesome. It is like the most impressive breakdown of women's running. It's I was like scrolling through this and I was like, wow, like yeah. we should actually do, we need to read it every week as podcast research. It's very important. Yeah. I need to look up her exact background, but I almost guarantee that Allison Wade is like one of the smartest people alive. Yeah. Well, also this week's podcast, it was like amazing woman, amazing woman, amazing woman, and then David Roach. <laughs> and it's because I, I control F my name in, the <laughs> yeah. podcast, in, in her, in the women emails. So I just search a women's email yeah. instead of like control F. What was like, what were we going to do? Oh, Boobs, bra, 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 yeah. bra, bra. I was like, David, <laughs> yeah. like, oh, I appeared in this one. <laughs> look, I'm a fast woman. Uh, well, no, no. They have to, they have to look it up to find out. What it is. They have to subscribe to her newsletter <laughs> okay. to see why I'm featured. Yes. And if you don't subscribe, never going to find out <laughs> cliffhanger to promote her shit. Oh, I love that. Okay. Next up is a fascinating study in the journal of nutrition. I actually wanted to have this one earlier and you vetoed it as the first study topic of the day. Okay. Well, I just like, okay. So it has to do with like, I think it's important to talk about why you're a little hesitant, not on the study design because the study design's a little up and down more on the topic. Well, it has to do with like vegetarian versus um like omnivore based meals. Yeah. And I just like, I want to uplift all different types of eating. Like sometimes like there are deep struggles with athletes that have restrictive behaviors when yeah. those overlap with vegetarian like based philosophies, but sometimes they can be really healthy too. And I yeah. never like want to always like keep poking at vegetarians. We're not poking at anyone, Megan. We're I know. The, the whole po- takeaway of this is just, you need to be a little bit more thoughtful. Yes, exactly. Because okay. you want to go through it and we're not doing yeah. this in a poking way. We're doing this in a way of like, you can be vegetarian and get in really strong protein sources sometimes. We're poking like the urologist pokes. Yeah, maybe it's way. even worse. We're in the good way. A sexy urologist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, here's the Those t- are tickles. <laughs> <laughs> we just watched a uh, Mike Birbiglia special called The Old Man in the Pool, and it's great. And in it, he talks about the finger in the butt test that they start. I haven't had one yet, thank God, um, but it's coming soon. And he's like, it's where you're talking about, I think it's like prostate exam, right? Yes. Yeah. And he talks about they stick two fingers in your butt. Yeah, I've done it. And if you're close to the doctor, two fingers in your mouth. <laughs> yeah. um, I haven't done that part. <laughs> okay. So here's the title. Uh, higher muscle protein synthesis rates following ingestion of an omnivorous meal compared with an isocaloric and isonitrogenous vegan meal in healthy older adults. And this is really cool because like so far, no study has looked at the anabolic response following ingestion of a meal. So they've also, they've often looked at like different protein sources, but they never actually just looked at a meal and said like, how does an omnivore meal meal compared to a vegetarian meal when we're thinking about things like protein synthesis? And how fascinating is that, that it's never been done? It shows probably how wild and hard it is to measure this stuff. Oh yeah. Nutrition-based science is actually really hard. And the (laughs) getting to just how hard it is and how it might not necessarily be relevant to everyone. It was eight men and eight women, 65 plus. Uh, they did it over two days. Essentially what happened is they brought these older people into a lab, hooked them up to a million different tubes, probably stuck a finger up their butt, <laughs> yeah. and then had them eat. So not necessarily directly one-to-one with athletes, but interesting study design. And I really appreciate it because they provided pictures yeah. of what they were eating. And so one meal was an omnivore meal, and it basically was centered around like lean ground beef and string bean and string beans and potatoes. And the other meal was a whole food vegan based meal with like quinoa and chickpeas and soybeans. And they had like parallel caloric sources and parallel like protein based sources. If you think about like grams of protein. Yeah. 
But if you looked at the pictures, uh-huh. the picture of like the the meal with ground beef was like all beautiful and well done up. Yeah, yeah. And the picture of the vegetarian based meal, it looked like a bear just like vomited onto a plate. <laughs> like there was like no differentiation. It was just like a plate of like shit stirred together. Yeah, yeah. It was pretty gross. Coming off the other end of the bear yeah. for sure. I mean, honestly, I feel like my protein synthesis would go down just from looking at that meal. It looked, I don't know. Did I'm it look pretty, bad to you? I'm very uplifting when it comes to my food porn. Yeah, actually your food porn is just kind of like stew. Yeah, well, just no. If I look at food, I'm like, that's ah, good food. <laughs> yeah. Um, and this was definitely some food porn. Yes, some was a little bit higher production value. Specifically, the the beef. The beef. Yeah. Some was a little bit more amateur. But you know what? We uplift all food porn in this house, Megan. That's true. Even bear vomit. A thousand percent. <laughs> yeah. What gets your boat going gets your boat going. Um. So they did a really fascinating um review here, where they did primed, continuous L ring. How do you pronounce that word? Phenylalanine. Phenylalanine infusions, um, along with blood and muscle biopsies. And it points out just how hard it is to measure this stuff and why you don't see these studies very often. But it found what you might expect based on what we've been teeing up here. 47% higher muscle protein synthesis in the meat group. In the plasma, essential amino acid concentration was much higher as well. Okay, 47%. This is actually almost even more wild than the effect size of what we were seeing in terms of EPO production in the ketone study. That's wild. Yeah. And I think it is, I think it is really important to talk about this, but I think it doesn't mean that like like athletes can't be vegetarian. I think you just really need to think about complete protein sources yeah. if you're a vegetarian athlete, because we really want to prioritize protein synthesis and recovery. And probably just need slightly higher protein intake is yes, what it comes yeah, down to. It's yeah. like, if you're not getting some meat sources, yes, there might be a little bit lower synthesis. So just get a little more yeah. and, or get it from um, supplement sources. So there's a bunch of studies that came out before this that measure no difference when it comes to um, you know protein powders. So just two different quick titles that'll give you the idea. A 2019 study, protein synthesis rates do not differ following ingestion of uh, whey, soy, or leucine-enriched protein. Um, And then 2022 study, plant-derived protein mix not different than animal-derived. So I think for vegetarian vegan athletes, we mentioned creatine before. That's Mm -hmm. something to consider because that could be lower if they measured that as well. Um, But also, if you're just doing whole foods or whatever, or whatever these athletes do, if you're doing bear poop, um, (laughs) probably have more protein overall. Try Mm -hmm. to really focus on that, which probably necessitates having some protein powders in your nutrition approach just so you get enough. I think this is especially relevant for female athletes. Yeah. Honestly, I think even if you're like, if you're a high level vegetarian based female athlete, I think there could be like a push to do two protein supplements a day. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, I think maybe even at baseline for like omnivore based female athletes, but I think if you feel like you're limited on protein or like if you're seeing struggles in terms of responding to training or adapting to training or even yeah. like muscle synthesis, like maybe think about that. Yeah. And final conclusion is just all protein is not created equal. That's true. And yes. Yeah. We're, we uplift tons of protein on this podcast. Probably if you did the post-exercise ketones type study on protein intake, you'd see significantly greater responses. So also it's like the mechanisms of that are varied. Like we're thinking about like gastric emptying time and like how that differs for animal based versus like vegetarian based like products. And so it's like literally a whole physiological milieu about how the body like synthesizes and digests and like utilizes protein sources. And so, yeah, think about it and give yourself a diverse range. I love that. Okay. So next up, I'm going to give you a couple options. Oh, yes. We can either do a study on injuries, which doesn't seem too sexy to me. We do bone density or go straight to hot takes. 
Let's do bone density okay. and then go okay. straight to hot takes. Injuries, okay. you're right. Injuries are not sexy. Injuries are not sexy, Megan. Preventing injuries is kind of sexy, but I feel like athletes don't always care about that until they're actually injured. It's true. <laughs> yes, yeah. And we're trying to bump up those fucking podcast numbers. Are we? I don't really care. Oh, yeah. I know you don't. Yeah. I do, though. I don't look at them. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I want you to click follow on the podcast wherever you listen. Go there and find the follow button. Click it now and give the podcast five stars if you can. It means a lot to us. helps other people find it. We put a lot of work into this each week and we do it because we love it. But I also do it because I like seeing those numbers inch up just a little bit. We do it because it's a date. And then yeah. you also like external validation of our date. <laughs> Actually, yeah. I do too. We all talk about internal process like all the time. Like, yeah. That's all swapis. Meanwhile, I'm here like every single week being like, how did that episode do? Well, in all fairness, it's like the only way we've progressed forward in the world. Like, I don't think I would be actually like in this position to have a podcast with you if I just resorted to my tendencies of being like, I don't care. Well, you do care. I do care. I yeah. think it's a complicated thing. It is a complicated thing, actually. Thank I you think, for saying that. Yeah, I think for me... I mean, it's, I don't care about putting... I don't want to care about putting myself out there to promote, but I do actually care about pushing the podcast forward. I think the difference is, for me, like you know, I can do it and maintain context to the point that like, if this episode gets three listens and they're all our family, I'd be okay with it. Oh yeah, me too. For you. Oh, it would be- You can you imagine, judgment cycles. That's true. Can you imagine the jokes that we would say if we got three listens? <laughs> <laughs> but you hit judgment cycles when you have that external stuff. I do. And so I don't engage in it. Yeah. yeah. Similar to like races even. Like, you know, it's, it's a little trickier for you sometimes than me. Like I'm so used to failing, but I'm just like, that's who I am now. I'm fail guy. You're a little bit more like you're- you're a stone cold killer. So sometimes you need to modulate that or have like different tools to prevent that killer mindset from coming out when it might not be needed, like a podcast. Yeah. I don't even know my UTMB index score. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's an example of it. It's like, I just don't engage. Yeah. Your highest score. Maybe that's me. I don't know if that's like healthy or not. You have almost an 800 number from some of your past races. Oh, really? Sorry. I shouldn't have told you. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> the thing is, I know your UTMB index score. What is it? Oh, it's, it's high. It's yeah. very, very high. I mean, granted, you haven't raced much recently, so I don't know how much. Did that matter? I don't know how yeah. to work. But um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> when you say that I might drop you in the last eight miles of a 50 mile, I'm like, Megan, you've had races that have higher scores than I do. <laughs> so if it's the first eight miles, I may be fucked. Let's be honest here. Okay. On to the bone density question. Back in February of this year, two weeks before Terrawera, I hopped off the treadmill and kind of fell apart. I was misdiagnosed with an adductor tear and hobbled my way back to running over the course of a couple months. Then it happened again. Except this time, we dug deeper and found both incidences were in fact multiple pelvic fractures. Ouch. More investigation has now led to a diagnosis of osteoporosis in my 30s with a T-score of negative 3. The guidance for this condition is aimed at untrained older adults. But as a fit 30-something, I'm looking for any insight on how I can move slash run forward besides, quote, fall prevention. Since the diagnosis, I have been cycling, swimming, and running with two strength sessions per week. I'm taking vitamins and collagen. Mileage has gone from an average of 90K per week to an average of 50K. I wonder if I will have a chance to do longer events in the future, like marathons and 50K. Is my future limited to short events? Is my future limited as an athlete? Any thoughts are welcome. And we talked about this on Patreon. And actually, yes. it was a discussion that we got so many messages about that we were like, we should bring this to the broader podcast. Yeah. And I think my first point is like, I just want to like reach out and give this listener a hug. Because I'm sure if you go into like the conventional medical system with this, 
people are like anti running enough as it is. They're like, you're going to hurt your knees or like, you're going to like limit your longevity. Then I'm sure this, this athlete has been told all kinds of things, but we have seen some of the best athletes in the world with diagnoses like this. Yes. And yes, we have to be creative. We have to be smart. We have to really think about fueling and like giving the body like this context for health but you can do it. Yeah. And I think holding that belief is also in part like necessary for recovery and for helping the bones heal. Yeah. So this athlete had negative three on DEXA. These are standard deviations for anyone that knows statistics. You, you can plot that out. That's way on the left side of That's the curve. That's way lower than theoretically the first percentile. But also the curve is based off of people that have gone to get a DEXA scan too. Yeah. And so it's also a different subset of the population as yeah, well. Yeah. And you know, I think it's one of those things that if we measured every variable like this, we'd see a bunch of people at different extremes. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely not your destiny. Like we have seen, this is negative three to give you hope. We have seen negative four. Yes. And we've seen those athletes come back and crush it at the top level of international ultra running. And I think it points out the body works in kind of this miraculous way where there's compensatory mechanisms and you can improve these numbers with the right approaches. And it does take a little bit of time. Like traditionally we measure DEXA scans yearly and you often don't see, like, I think don't get discouraged if you don't see a ton of budging initially. Like sometimes there's like some inertia that it takes for the bones to budge. And sometimes it happens on slower timescales, but I feel like it's even the inertia itself. Like sometimes I feel like the numbers progressing, don't always tell the full picture. And actually I do a bunch of different types of bone scans. There's another scan called HRPQCT that looks a little bit at like bone geometry and some different qualities of the bone. And so bone density on a traditional DEXA scan isn't always even the full picture either. I think they should have gone for a better acronym. I know, right? Yeah. What was it? It's a mouthful. High resolution peripheral quantitative uh, CT. Wait, you actually, I was saying, I was asking for the letters, not the actual words. (laughs) I said HRPQCT. You're so smart. No, I'm not. How I mean, did you do that? That's legit the research I do. I should know that. <laughs> no, man, you do. Oh, you're so so brilliant. Um, but you know, when we see athletes with this type of number, what we tell them is not you, even that you need to like necessarily reduce your training a ton. Just that you need to be really smart, really responsive to your body, and understand there's a slightly different context. Mm-hmm. But your risk is not going to be fundamentally different than it was before you knew this number. I think sometimes. In deciding that these numbers are destiny, people essentially think, okay, this means I'm going to get fractures. And it's like, dude, I've seen athletes with T-scores of three get fractures. Like it's going to happen sometimes. Positive three, you mean? Positive three. Yes, which means they're like in the very, very, very top percentile of bone density. Yeah, Yeah. and so essentially you just need to be responsive and understand not only is there hope – you could come back stronger than ever with a slightly different training approach, slightly different supplement approach. And I think in that training approach, let's think slightly lower mileage um, and then replacing that aerobic stimulus from the missed mileage into cross-training. Yeah. Like almost taking, like I, I'd be curious to know if Parker Valby has had a DEXA scan and if that has informed her decision to go to two to three days a week yeah. and then to supplement with this like large base of, of cross-training. Yeah, and if you're going to increase your volume, do it through very easy running. Mm-hmm. Like this is where moderate, like, you know, gray zone type running becomes a problem because that's when you get injured. Like you're probably going to be okay on very easy runs. Make sure you're doing a lot of that and spreading them out. Taking your full rest day is probably the biggest training recommendation at all be- of all because that's the bone building day. Actually, my biggest training recommendation of all is eat a fuck ton of food. Yes, of yes, course. Yeah, and I but think, that applies to everyone. Yes, yeah. And I, I consider that actually to be training. I consider yes. that to be performance, but rest days for sure too. Yes. And, be- and also think about your nutritional approach. As we always talk about in this context, like, yes, you can have this number without restriction, but often it is coinciding with the history, whether it's eating disorder or other restrictive tendencies. So pay attention to things like we just talked about, like, did you become a vegan athlete when you were in the midst of an eating disorder? Ask yourself that question because that type of thing, it's like, well, is this the rationale 
that I'm actually telling the world? Like, am I being 100% honest about why I do these things? Um, but also similar approach with anything you do at, at nutritionally um, and training wise, just loaded in. And sometimes it's not just any one thing. Sometimes it's like a perfect storm coming together and cascading to produce bone density values like this. Like yeah. genetics play like there's estimates like 40 to 60% of a role in overall bone density. And yeah. so it's like, you know, really think about like all the different things coming in. So like eating habits, genetics, like dive into your family history. Think about strength training. Think about like hormones, maybe even get like thyroid measured. And so I feel like because sometimes bone density is this perfect storm, we need to like dig into the entire storm and understand like all the different variables that are feeding into bones. What I just love that you just did, you were like, because, and then you said storm and you flexed both arms. I was digging, digging with with my biceps. If we had a YouTube channel, we would be so on the top of the charts. Okay. Also people probably, who watches like YouTube videos for podcasts? That's what people do nowadays. Do they? Especially young people. Yeah. That's that's what we need to do, Megan. I was looking at our charts. We don't get the twenty year olds. Yeah, we get a big bulge of the middle of like the younger millennials. But could we be? I mean, we're like functionally naked as we record yeah. this because that's where our best brain waves are. Uh-huh. I feel like that wouldn't work on the YouTube channel, or maybe it would work really well. Uh, it depends. Yeah, I I think for it depends where the camera's angled. <laughs> yeah, to me, I don't know who exactly we're getting. We're probably getting some freaks though, and those freaks are my people. It's angled at you. I'm going viral. I'm going to take those freaks on. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the other thing to think about is supplementation. High dose vitamin D and calcium. This is probably something that applies to almost everybody who's low on these variables, but basically everybody should be taking vitamin D. I would add on top of that too, protein powder is your friend. So strong muscles create strong bones by the tension of the muscle on the bones. That's such such a cool topic. And like so many other various reasons too. And I would even say there might be a place for creatine in here or collagen. There's some like mixed studies on that. And so like you can get spicy with your supplement game. Yeah. Well, I don't know, spicy supplements or something. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Capsaicin. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then the final one is this is a place that heavy lifting really does come in handy. Yes. Loading the spine can be really beneficial to give some of the signals to your body. In fact, actually, I love that you said spine because typically there's a pattern in runners where the spine is the lowest part of the body in terms of like bone density. And then it starts to increase and get better gradually as you progress towards the toes. And that's just because of how we load our bodies as runners. And so you need to take control of that and load your spine through things like like weighted squats and deadlifts and things like that. And all of these tips probably apply to just about everybody. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like- I would say just be careful. I think plyometrics are also great too, yeah. but don't go like jumping around because plyometrics themselves can also cause weird bone stress. And so be very careful with that. Dude plyometrics we've seen some like okay plyometrics that's a place where i think it shows the failures of exercise physiology research in having such a myopic view on controlling one variable Mm -hmm. and why you should take everything we said with about ketones with a grain of salt too yes yeah it's like plyometrics yes if you introduce some weird stimulus where someone's like doing a jumping thing you're gonna see changes over a few weeks in their bodies but like really like how many other interventions could you introduce that would cause a similar stimulus i bet it's like a hundred. Okay. I'm a little bit more pro plyometric than you are, but I also think you have to accept that there's risk in doing that too and be very cautious. I've never seen you jump up on a fucking box. Yeah. I'm not doing plyometrics, but I am, <laughs> I am pro plyometric. You're open. <laughs> yes. But not for you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. That's, that's kind perfect. of how our podcast is. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. You want to get to hot takes? Let's do it. Uh, let's do it. First, anything we want to promote? Probably John G. John G. We love John G. John G. Go to johng.com. Use code SWAP or tell them we sent you. SWAP is 15% off. The best winter running gear. I am wearing their pants right now. They're awesome. I'm not wearing them with underwear. They're rather see-through. <laughs> yeah. Good for our YouTube audience, but 
Um, touch such good stuff, especially for winter. Actually, your parents came over last night and you were wearing a very cute John G hoodie. It was the Merino hoodie. And your mom was like, why does David actually dress well? <laughs> and I was like, it was because he was sent John G. It's the best stuff. I can't wait to uh, you know be partnered with this company for a long time. So John G.com, uh, J-N-J-I.com. Use it there. Okay, on to hot takes. Soccer training and soccer matches gives you all the fitness you need to race a 5K. My nine-year-old boy just whooped my ass at the Thanksgiving 5K. I'd been following a training plan, and he just ran with his soccer fitness. Overtook me on the uphill, tapped me on the shoulder, and smiled as he sped past me. Happy for him, a little gutted for me. Thought I'd have an, at least another year on him. I did place third in my old age category, so not all that bad. He placed second in his. He turned nine three months ago. Soccer power. I may just have to start training with him. Oh, 100%. I yeah. think soccer, for me, like field hockey... I would be scared to race my 16-year-old field hockey self in like the 800. Yeah. You were, I mean, you were just an insane athlete though. It's some of the best training. Yeah. And I think you'd crush everything. What this actually reminds me of is the movie Dogma, Mm. which had a quote from Matt Damon's character who's supposed to be like a demon. So understand a demon is saying this. And it was something on the the lines of mass genocide is the hardest physical activity (laughs) that you can do. Other than soccer. <laughs> yeah. And that's 100% true. Soccer is way too hard. I would die. Soccer is so hard. Yeah. So hard. It's also great though for building bones. Yes. Yes. Okay. Number two, hot sauce equals heat acclimation training. Ooh, I like that. If that was a proxy for heat acclimation, you would be fucked. Yeah. I'm not very good with hot sauce. I was eating a sandwich the other day and it was like very, I didn't even notice it was spicy. And you're like, why is this so spicy? It was too spicy for me, Megan. <laughs> uh, actually, capsaicin does have some role in yes. like yeah. performance and things like that. It can be used as an ergogenic aid at times. So maybe there's something to that. Maybe it's because your mouth is on fire. Like I'm just going to run a little faster. <laughs> it's like being chased by a bear, but in your mouth. True. <laughs> well, they do say that cooling, like menthol yes. rinses, are decreased perception of temperature. So yes. like if yeah. you're running and you take a menthol rest when mouth r- rinse when you're hot, it makes you feel cooler. So similarly, maybe it does make you feel hotter. Maybe there is something to this. Well, maybe this is why Courtney DeWalter brushes her teeth all the time. She's like, oh. I just got to clear the my the milieu in my mouth. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Next one. Herbs, spices, and florals should never be included in running product flavors. No, I do not want a lavender and honey flavored gel or a ginger turmeric apple sports drink. Oh, 100%. Granted, I would take ginger. Ginger is great. But yeah. lavender and honey, I don't even want that at baseline. Yeah. This is why I like I like sports supplements that really simplify shit. Yeah, that are not like candle flavors. Yes. And speaking of precision. Oh, yeah. This is good shit. So um, go to the Precision Hydration website. Um, we link in our show notes to it. And use code SWAP, S-W-A-P there for 15% off. On our Patreon, we have a link that is 15% off lifetime that you can use forever. So you know, either subscribe to our Patreon or use this link. It is good shit and it goes down easy and it doesn't have ginger turmeric apple. There's no lavender or honey in Precision. No, no. It just, but it goes down so great, especially at high intensity. Next up, it's not super shoes, AG1 or more science. The real reason athlete performances have been improving is because of grocery order, pickup, delivery, and online shopping, giving everyone so much time back on the weekends for training. Ooh, I like this one. We are we do sometimes do grocery online delivery. Actually, probably a lot. But yeah. here's our new thing, and this is my hot take, is you go and do your grocery shopping, but you get delicious dinner and eat it while you, like after you've done your grocery shopping. So we've been going yeah. to Whole Foods and buying Bird Call, and it's kind of like a Chick-fil-A equivalent and getting our groceries at the same time. And it's the only time I'm ever motivated to grocery shop. Yeah. It's when there are chicken nuggets involved. I feel like if Whole Foods has Bird Call, Trader Joe's needs something. Oh, to Chick-fil-A. Step up I feel no, like not Chick-fil-A. I mean, they need something like 
gross. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I've always said Trader Joe's is just Walmart with good branding. Mm-hmm. It feels that way sometimes. And I love Trader Joe's very deeply. But what would be conducive to that? Like, I bet Trader Joe's would serve you like the most delicious fried rat you have ever tasted. And then look in your eyes and like want to like eye fuck you at the same time oh. as they do so. Mm-hmm. Yo, those cashiers. Those, those cashiers are all about it. They're all about <laughs> it. All right. On to Listener Corner. Before we do that, subscribe to our Patreon, um, patreon.com slash swap, uh, S-W-A-P. There we do a bonus podcast every week. We were told that episode 77 that just came out last Friday had the funniest conclusion of all time. It got a little wild. Yeah. It got a little wild. Should we bring that into the main podcast at some point? Uh, Maybe I, next week. I don't know. I think that the Patreon podcast needs to be its own thing. And that is where, if you think anything on this podcast is interesting, that podcast is truly us with our inhibitions down. Interesting is nice. I would say it's weird. Yes. yes. So if you like this podcast, there's many days worth of episodes there that you can listen. Uh, they're all timeless for the most part. We just answer listener questions for 30 minutes or 40 minutes. And I think you'd love it. And let's do a listener corner. I actually like this listener corner because it's both a listener corner and a question yes. at the same time. Okay, here it is. This is not a running related question, really more of a career question, but I'd love to hear your and Megan's thoughts. I'm currently an engineer. I went to grad school and got my PhD, but I've always been fascinated by bi- biology, chemistry, and physiology. I freaking love listening to your podcast, specifically the science topics and reading about all things physiology and exercise related, but I've never had the guts to make the switch from engineering, but I've always thought about it. This is where my question comes in. If you were in my situation first, would you make a change? And second, what would you do to make the change? I've thought about returning to school for a short period or finding a job in the field and learning from experts or somehow making connections and learning as I transition. But it is scary to change what I've been doing for so long that is comfortable and secure for something unknown. Truly, any advice is really appreciated. Thanks again and hope you have a wonderful weekend. Yeah, such a good question. So I answered this initially on Patreon. Did you say make a change? What do you think I said? I said it. I think you said that. Actually, it was a little bit more cautious in my response. And so as everyone knows that's listened to this, quit your job. That's Just like, do it. That's like David's tagline. Yeah, Mine yeah. is like, fuck around and find out. Yours is quit your job. And we should have them like mutually tattooed. Yeah. So quit your job is like the extreme. But the reason I ask that is always just to have people do the mental exercise because it's possible. Yes. The same thing goes with moving or anything like that. I think sometimes all of us can just get caught in whatever inertia we decided to go on when we were 18. And I think, yeah, it's you don't actually have to quit, but it's the yeah. exercise of thinking about it and thinking about like what that would be like that I think is really empowering. I guess my my thought about this is to ask a lot of questions. I think yeah. there's, for me, like I found out a lot when I went through the PhD process of like talking to different mentors and asking about their research and sometimes even like shadowing and spending time in labs. And it was really insightful about like what a day in the job looks like. You know what doesn't cause any changes in your life? What? Asking questions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but, it, but I think if you ask questions and find an answer that feels truly right, I think a lot of times you will know it. Yeah. And I think for me, like there is a number of different environments and research places. For me, like a lot of those were like animal model centered or like really like wet lab based that I didn't want to go into. And it yeah. was very clear when I like asked the questions and spent the time with those mentors. And then when I saw the program at Stanford and it was like, there was like some of the female athlete focused research yeah. and stuff that I do, it was like immediately a heck yes. Yeah. And I, that's kind of what I said to this listener in the sense that, yes, I do think you should quit your job, but the first step before that is probably to at least dip your toes in it just a little bit more. Yeah. Ask questions. Yeah. No, no, you need action. Action <laughs> yes, is required. Yes, yeah. So for them, maybe applying to programs mm-hmm, yes. um, would be the first step. Something like that, that there's this intermediate step where as long as you're not like, fuck this, I'm ready to go, 
you try something else. But just in general, I don't know. I, I just think that there's so much value in trusting this instinct and being like, look, you're an engineer. I promise you can get an engineering job later. Mm-hmm. And if you don't like your current job, try something else. Yes. See if you can get into this field. Try your building your own business. Well, I was going to say, you can even do, I think one of the big benefits of like being slightly outside a field is use what you're good at and yeah. carve a niche with like combining what you're good at with what where you want to be. And I feel like that might be a really cool spot too. Yeah. So it's like, is there a place in exercise physiology that utilizes engineering? And like, can you use your already existing skills without having to go get a PhD too? Yeah. And this person's so brilliant that yeah. they're kind of set up perfectly for the future. Also, sometimes PhDs are very singular. Like you yeah. study like one thing and by the end of the four or five years that you're there, you're like, I want to study other things. And there's no job either. You yes, know? So yeah. I, I guess my point always is that there's so many interesting ways to spend your life out there and to take chances. Because worst case scenario, you can almost always find something to do, especially in the current economic environment where there are a lot of open jobs. It's like, I don't know. I think take a leap. That's what I'm saying to this person. You're brilliant. You have a great job, but you know what's even more fun? Taking a risk that you have no idea where it's going to end. And it's a privilege to take a risk too. Like not everyone can do that. And I think if you're in the life situation where you can do it, like I feel like it feels overwhelming and sometimes there's like decision fatigue, but it's also really cool too. That's true. And like lean into that privilege. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I guess that's the, the point is that for some people, it's just you know trying to get day to day. Oh, just the like hard part. sometimes if you have to pay the bills and like put food on the table, and you don't have like the family help that you could lean back on or anything like that. Oh yeah, that risk is like impossible. But I think it's if you do, it's like oh that's a gift. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, fuck around and find out, but do it a little bit a Megan style. You know what my conclusion is? Is it ask questions? It's clitoris. <laughs> <laughs> that's the answer. <laughs> we love you all. Woo-hoo. Huzzah.